Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And I am guilty, or should I say I used to be guilty, of so many of these protest behaviors. Fourth, we're going to talk about the concept of connection and reassurance, and we're going to give you some tips and tricks on how to manage the cycle just a little bit better. Okay, Dr. Terry, so if people are listening to this podcast and they're already aware that either them or someone around them is living with an anxious attachment style, and like we said in episode 38, there is no shame. This is something that 20% plus of the entire world live with. So today, as ever, we're approaching this with love and compassion, with um, people understanding that this isn't something that they chose. This was formed by the age of one. So for the people that are listening that need to go into this a little bit deeper, what are some of the most common triggers that you see in your clinical practice with your clients and just in day-to-day life? We talked in episode 38 about how we're so sensitive to any changes in energy, communication, mood in the relationship in our partner. So one of the most common triggers is when we sense or we interpret that our partner is quiet, they're maybe in a bad mood, we feel like they're pulling away and we always personalize that. We make it about us. They're pulling away from us. They're in a bad mood because they're changing their mind about us or they're having an issue in the relationship. So it's those perceived changes in, you know, just human behavior. People have varying moods. People get busy or not busy. So any change that isn't just super consistent, super connected is going to make us anxious. That's one Mm. of the most. And I think when you put it like that, when you're not being triggered or your anxious attachment style isn't being triggered objectively, you can say, of course, someone can have a bad day. We're humans with the messiest emotions. And I think that you're so right that when you have this attachment style, until you're aware of it, you instantly make it about you. Because a secure person would think, oh, they're not themselves today. I wonder what's happened. Maybe it was something at work. Maybe they are stressed about something. But the second that you're anxious, you don't have that step between feeling their behavior and then the jump to the conclusion of this is about me. And this is something that I'm working on right now is that the guy that I'm dating, I'm very, very communicative. Like I have a hundred thoughts a minute. Definitely can be quite an anxious person. He's the opposite. He doesn't communicate much. He's very calm. He just doesn't say much. So I guess the end goal is that you work on your attachment style. So that person's change in mood or general personality 
doesn't trigger you. Is, is that right? Yes, it's definitely your work. But also in any relationship, both people have to work together. So the guy that you're dating needs to also learn about you and maybe, you know, communicate a little bit more than he naturally would sometimes just because he knows that helps you. Doesn't mean he has to change who he is or how he shows up, but you work together. So he knows you tend to get a little anxious. You like a little bit more communication. So sometimes he'll lean into that, just like you're leaning into self-soothing and correcting the stories that your anxious attachment style comes up with. Okay, I love that because I think there's this tendency you're looking to them to reassure you constantly. There's also the other side of the scale, which is, no, this is crazy. I just need to deal with this on my own. It's not for him to fix. And I love what you said about this being like a dance where you meet in the middle. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things that I've been doing recently in my new relationship is that I communicate a lot. And historically, I've needed a lot of reassurance. And if I haven't got it, I felt anxious. Now I've met him and I've realized, okay, this guy doesn't give me a lot of reassurance, but instead of going all in being like, I need this reassurance or pulling back and being like, I'm just going to handle it myself, blah, blah, blah. We've done exactly that, which is that I've calmly communicated to him that this is how I feel sometimes. And this is how I communicate. And this is how you communicate. And it's been so beautifully productive. Like I've watched him go from someone that just doesn't communicate outwardly a lot to someone that now does. But I haven't got there in the way of manipulating him in the way that I would have done in my old relationships. Like in my old relationships, I would have just texted them all the time and I would have molded them into someone. Like I would have gone annoyed at them if they hadn't messaged me all day. I would have been like, why didn't you message me? And so I feel like we've navigated it really healthily now to a point where he went to work yesterday and I just didn't hear from him the whole day. And it was great. I didn't even think about it. I had nothing to say to him. I was deep in work. I was so stoked about how well the podcast was doing. I just didn't need to speak to him. So we've navigated that to meet in the middle. So that was a very long-winded way of saying, this isn't for you to handle on your own. And it isn't on you to put on them. It's about meeting in the middle, right? So let's take this back to the triggers that we were talking about. So if someone seems distant or in a bad mood, for example, how would you handle that in that moment? Because we don't want to silence and suppress, but we also don't want to start a cycle where every time their mood is off that we're putting gasoline on the cycle. It's a little bit of a dance. I can't give you like one answer that's going to work in every situation. What I would say is if you are working on healing and calming your anxious attachment style to wait a bit longer than you normally would. You wait and see what happens. And again, like in order to do that, you need to learn how to self-soothe, which we'll get to at the end of the episode. Your mind is going to jump to all these stories. I haven't heard from him or her in six hours. What's going on? So instead of asking about it, you could wait and see what happens. You could initiate contact a little bit later than you typically would. Wait and see what happens. And then when you are calm, whenever that is, it could be when you talk or it could be the next day, you share your experience. And the reason to share is not to say, so don't do that again. 
or you're doing that wrong, or you always need to be available to me. It's to say, this is what happens for me. And I want you to know what happens for me so you can understand me and perhaps use that information how you want to, right? It can mean different things on different days, but it's, it's an ongoing conversation. In the past, you would get annoyed. Like, why did you not text me all day? And that is such a normal response for an anxiously attached person. But we want to stop that. Unless it's this pattern or someone is like super inconsistent, it's not their responsibility to be checking in with you to make sure you feel okay. That's your job. Yeah, I love that. And I also love what you've said about not acting when you're feeling triggered. And we're going to get into that in the next section of the episode. But I think that it's very easy the second that you feel panic, and we're going to come to it in protest behaviors as well, to act, lead into activation, which is then going to lead into protest behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. So you can break the cycle almost before it starts, right? Yeah. Um, so I think a couple of the other triggers that we discussed before this episode, we've spoken about someone being distant or seeming quiet or seeming in a bad mood or not texting you back or you not hearing from them, them not initiating contact. I think other ones that I personally have experienced or that I've seen friends experience is this concept of having a plan to see them again or not having a plan to see them again. So one of my best friends said to me once something that really stuck with me, which was that she would feel anxious when she wouldn't hear from the guy she was dating. But then the second that they had a plan in the diary, she said she didn't mind whether it was this week or next week, but she knew that plan basically reflected his interest. So she was able to be reassured. And also just a really stupid one that I'm going to share my own personal one is that I shared the guy I'm dating on Instagram. Like I shared a story of him. I tagged him in it. It was me and him. It was cute. And he didn't repost it to his story. And I internalized this. I straight up made this story that, oh my God, he doesn't want people on his Instagram to know that we're dating. I knew that that was my anxious attachment style, like making a story up, making an assumption up. And that was a fear. So I was able to just manage that. And I actually brought it up a couple of days later. I said something and he was like, oh my goodness, of course I want to share you to my story. He's just was like, I didn't even think about it. Like I just saw the story, closed it, you know, never thought about it again. So I guess we can wrap up section one of this episode, which is that there's a fear that is underlying the trigger. Most of these things tie back to a fear, right? Yeah. Some of the fears that drive anxious attachment are, one, I care about this person more than they care about me, which if you take that further is really about abandonment. They could leave me at any minute. They could change their mind about me at any minute. And a lot of people talk about feeling like out of sight, out of mind. When we're apart, I don't trust that their feelings for me are going to sustain in the same way that mine sustain and continue when I'm not with him or her. Another one is I'm either too much for someone or I'm not enough for someone. And the third one is really just a deep-seated fear that we are not lovable, that at the core Nobody's going to stick around because we are not lovable. And as somebody continues to get to know us more, they won't love us. They'll leave. And I think that it's good for people to understand that it doesn't have to just be one of those fears. Like I would say 
that I have all of those fears. Like when you list them out, I'm like, yeah, cool. Got that one. Got that one. Because this morning, for example, okay, me and my man were lying in bed and we started having a conversation around something and it led on to me sharing a big trauma that I went through when I was younger and it didn't feel right until now to share it because it's obviously very intimate and I've learned through therapy as well that you do not have to share these intimate stories of you until you know the other person is a safe vehicle to hold them and that they are not going to leave. So I had established that I felt safe to share, et cetera, et cetera. And so I shared and he was beautiful. The way he handled it was just so lovely. But then he had to go. He got a call from work. They said, you need to come in early. So he had to get up and he had to leave. And in that instant, I felt like, one, I'm too much. I've just dumped a major trauma on him and he's going to leave, okay? Physically and emotionally. Two, I then felt like I'm not enough, but in a capacity of, oh, like some people just feel like they have no trauma. So it's, oh, I wish I was just less or whatever. My monkey mind was like, he's going to leave. He's not going to want to be with a girl that did these things when she was younger or went through these stressful situations. So I think my point on this is that you can have multiple fears, right? You don't just have to fit into one category. Absolutely. And I, as you were talking, I thought about another one too, that's really common that I don't think is talked about very much, but it's this fear that we are replaceable. And the reason that people with anxious attachment think that way is because we often use people to feel good. And so we often date And if someone isn't giving us what we want, we move on to someone else. And so we think that other people are going to do that too. Mm. So sometimes when we are operating from an anxious attachment style, we're looking for, we're using people to make us feel good as opposed to getting to know them and really loving them and accepting them for who they are. So that's Mm. how we imagine other people do it too. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I've never even thought or heard anything like that. So that is super interesting. And I think that, you know, in that moment, because I've done so much work now, I I didn't need to do anything. I was able to sit with the fact that you shared something intimate with someone that you are intimate with, who has proven that they are consistent and kind and caring and able to hold space for you. You do not need to message them and apologize. I think the old me would have apologized. So I would have messaged and said, I'm so sorry. Like, I know that was a lot. Like, it's not a big deal, you know, really undermine the fact that, yeah, it was a fucking big deal. Like that situation that I went through at 18 years old defined my life for a long time. And in fact, I'm going to open up my messages and tell you exactly what I said to him. I said, have a good day at work. Thanks for holding space for me this morning. It's a part of my life that I don't share often and that I'm still learning to forgive myself for, but that it's important that I was able to share with you. So thank you. I'll see you later. Have a great day. And I just felt like I didn't need to apologize. I didn't need him to message me back and say, you're lovable, you're worthy. It doesn't matter what you've done. And I think that hopefully that can give people hope that's listening to this episode that you can get to a point where you don't get triggered all the time. You don't need that person to make you feel okay. That message you sent was so beautiful because 
you rooted yourself in something different, which is really that it was a gift for you to share that. And you shared it because you felt safe with him. So I just love that you thanked him for holding space instead of apologizing for sharing. It's so different. Yeah, it is so different. And also he has said to me before, thank you for giving me this opportunity, like to share and receive love with you. Like, He's, yeah, I know. He's basically said what no man has ever said. He says it's a blessing and a pleasure to be able to share with me, but also thank you for be able, being able to receive it. Because I think that before I did the work or before people do the work, it's so easy to be triggered by stories. You know, this morning I was sharing a lot about infidelity, like how unfaithful I was to my boyfriends when I was younger how much trauma that caused me, how much trauma it was driven by. And the old me would have been too scared to share that because I would have thought that he would have judged me and then would have thought that I was going to do the same thing to him, et cetera, et cetera. But when you remove the judgment from a situation, you can just share your truth. And also when you've done the work, you know, I was then able to share, we've spoken on this podcast before, about why I did the thing I did what drove the thing I did and now why I am different and why that cycle won't happen again. So I was then able to reassure him about why that's not something that he needs to worry about. So yeah, I love that message that I sent as well. And I'm going to give myself like a metaphorical pat on the back for it. Okay. So second part of the episode, we're going to now talk about what happens when that anxious attachment style gets activated. So your nervous system gets activated, those emotional wounds get activated, you start to feel physical and mental repercussions of that. I find it a very physical experience. It's like (gasps) tight chest, like butterflies. Oh my God, I fucked this. What do you see in practice as like your clients, what they go through when they get activated? Those physical symptoms you talked about, and they're just literally consumed consumed with the relationship, consumed with the fears, the stories they're telling themselves. And it's like, they will not be okay until they hear from this person and they get answers. And they get that reassurance that nothing has changed. So it's just like racing thoughts and these old beliefs and these stories that we make up in our mind. And nothing else matters. Nothing else is as important. We can't eat. We can't sleep. Sometimes we start to medicate because we can't tolerate the discomfort or the pain or the ambiguity. And that's hard because relationships are going to contain periods of uncertainty and ambiguity. And like we've said before, you can't have reassurance on tap all the time. It's a feeling of safety you need to find in yourself. So then you will understand if you are in a relationship that's a safe container. When we know how to feel safe within ourselves, then we know what safety feels like and we'll be able to say, okay, does this relationship feel safe to me? Until then, nothing really feels safe. Yeah, I love that. I think for me, just understanding this three-step process, fear, trigger, and activation is the starting point of how to manage this because without understanding those steps, you just jump, you're just bam, straight into activation. You don't understand the fear and you don't understand the trigger. So for anyone listening, I feel like what happens with me is when I feel those uncomfortable feelings rising in my body, like 
I will sit down and I will talk to myself. I will put my phone down. Do not message that person. Do not do anything. We're going to, we're going to get into protest behaviors, but in that moment, just sit down, put your hand on your chest and say to yourself, like, okay, this feels horrible. I feel like I'm going to be sick. I feel like I'm going to die. Whatever it is, doesn't matter how dramatic it is. I like to break down what happened. So this event happened and this made me feel like this. But the truth is, is that most likely that is not what is going on. And my fear of X, Y, Z is driving this. And something that I also have found revolutionary is a quote that Brene Brown once said in one of her podcasts, which is always assume positive intent. And it's something that has stuck with me because, oh my goodness, it helps. Because what I've learned about life is that most people are not actively trying to hurt you, okay? There's a very small proportion of society that are not right in the head and that they deem pleasure from hurting you. But the vast majority of people are not trying to hurt you. So if they're not texting, assume positive intent, assume they're busy, assume they're in a meeting. If they've had a bad day, assume it's about something else, not about you. Assume nothing has changed. It's the opposite of what anxious attachment thinking. I love that. Either assume positive intent or assume nothing has changed. And I think that that for me is like the smallest start to start changing those neural pathways in your brain. Because if you are anxiously attached, in my experience, you always jump to the worst conclusion. You make an assumption and then that wiring just continues to rewire. And what they say in neuroplasticity is those that fire together, wire together. So for anyone listening, it basically means the thought processes that you have most frequently become stronger because they wire more strongly into your brain. So I just love that positive intent activity because I think it starts to go against the wiring and it starts to wire like some other wirings which say, oh, maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe it wasn't about me. So say that, for example, you haven't been able to get a handle over the trigger or the activation and the positive intent hasn't worked or the assuming that nothing has gone wrong hasn't worked and actively sitting with yourself calmly hasn't worked. This is then when you see people move into protest behaviors. So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about protest behaviors, because this is going to be a juicy part of the episode. (laughs) So protest behavior is basically a behavior to try and what's the ultimate goal there? Is it to reestablish contact with that person and basically get the reassurance that we need, but we go about it in a super messed up, unhealthy way? Yes, exactly. We are trying to get their attention so we can reestablish contact, but we're doing it in very childish ways, ways that we probably learned as kids. Instead of texting and saying, hey, I haven't heard from you all day. Is everything okay? Or can we chat later? Asking for what you need. You do all these indirect acting out ways, protest Mm -hmm. ways that usually, and I want to make this point, protest behaviors do the opposite of what you want. Protest behaviors usually push people away when what you're trying to do is bring them closer to you. The first one is really making up excuses to contact the person. You feel like you need to hear from them. And sometimes it could be excessive. So you haven't heard from them and then you start sending them texts. You don't hear back, you send more texts. This behavior that was often seen as crazy 
And I don't like to use the word crazy, but it is having an impact on how the other person is going to perceive you. So thinking of reasons to contact them, contacting them excessively, using social media, like stalking them on social media, going down that rabbit hole to find out what are they doing, where are they really at, trying to find things that either refute or feed these stories that we're coming up with in our head, or using social media to manipulate or get their attention. So posting stories that are cryptic, trying to make them jealous by going out and posting pictures with your friends or other people, tactics that are trying to make them feel bad or make them feel jealous. That is fascinating. And I 100% have been guilty of this. Let's not pretend that we all haven't, right? I've done it all. The stalking them, the stalking their friends to see what they're doing. You know, I actually, this conversation that I was having with that girl yesterday, she was also telling me that this girl we were talking about literally will is like a social media sleuth. We'll like go through everyone's stories and looking at that and that person's there and looking at their stories and is he there and is he doing this? And exactly what you said about confirming or refuting the story. I think we've all done the social media stalking, you know, particularly if they're not talking to us or they're not replying, then you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Go on their Instagram. What are you doing? Oh, okay, you're doing that. So you have time to do that, but you don't have time to message me back. So I think that one's like, a big one. And I'm also going to be honest that I have done the posting to social media to make people jealous probably my whole life. Like I don't, I definitely don't do it anymore since I started going to therapy, but I would 100% try and get someone's attention by posting pictures of X, Y, Z, me going out, me looking good, me made up, me in a bikini. And when you get that response from them, when they hit like a heart emoji on the story or something, you get that validation and it's fuck yeah. And it feels so good. That's one of the problems I think with these protest behaviors is that sometimes they work. So if you pull back, then the other person comes forward. Or if you do something, then they re-engage and it feels so good. What is it that we have to do in those moments when we need to break that wiring of, because sometimes it works, right? But it's not healthy. So we need to rewire that into a more healthy behavioral trait. And what would you say there? Yes. I just want to say that sometimes, I will even say oftentimes, if you are anxiously attached, you are probably with somebody who is avoidantly attached. And so one of the things I want to say, because we keep saying assume positive intent, but you also have to, like, if you're having to do these protest behaviors a lot and they work, you're probably with somebody that is not helping your anxious attachment right? You don't want to be in this toxic kind of push and pull, pursue and chase relationship. So I just want to make that point. But assuming you're in a safe container of a relationship with a healthy partner, then instead of the protest behaviors, you do exactly what you did, Louise, today, like you caught yourself, right? You didn't start to spin, you didn't get overwhelmed and super activated. That's the piece I think that We'll dive into at some point about how do you calm yourself? What do you need to do differently? How do you change your brain with the kinds of thoughts you feed yourself and the stories you tell? But you basically need to think about, okay, what is it I really want here? And then find a direct way to get it. And sometimes it's not going to be from that other person. Sometimes we're seeking from that other person what we need to be giving to ourselves. 
a sense of safety, a sense of grounding, and a reminder that our happiness, our life does not depend on the outcome of this relationship or whether this person shows up for us or not. We get so focused that everything else disappears. Totally. And I think that ties back into some of the concepts that we spoke about actually across the whole podcast together about that external validation from being outside of us, that only someone outside of us, them choosing us, them loving us, them picking us, them telling us that they love us can make us feel lovable, worthy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that a much bigger piece underneath all of this, it goes probably beneath the individual even fears and the triggers is this like foundational belief about ourselves, which is that do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? And I think that's the hardest question ever because I remember three years ago, I saw a shaman in Tulum at the end of the one hour session. She just said to me, do you love yourself? And I think I said yes, but basically deep down she was saying like, you don't. And when she said that, it just was like such a trigger. And then I came out and I saw my best friend who had also seen the shaman and had had the exact same situation. And, you know, part of us was laughing, thinking, God, this woman makes $400 an hour to ask people if they love themselves. But the more like poignant fact of this story is that that is what everything comes down to, is that people are going into these healing modalities, looking for healing, looking for answers. And the answer really so much of the time is that we just don't really love ourselves. We don't really like ourselves. And it makes me feel really emotional talking about it because we live in a society where we never talk about it. Yes, your parents loved you. Yes, you had great friends. Yes, you had a good upbringing. You know, maybe you didn't have those things. But fundamentally, beneath it all, I think that the connection to ourselves in today's society is so wobbly. And I think that that is like, Another thing that we will go into when we launch our courses and workshops, because we need so much more in-depth time to go into the drivers behind this. But I think it's just also important for us to acknowledge that, yes, you can fix the triggers, you can fix the protest behaviors, you can fix the activation strategies. But to do that, you also need to nurture that connection with yourself, which is that it's not going to be people outside of you in the long term that can fix you. That's so true. And it's so funny because I was just having a conversation with one of my best friends this week, just talking about like, now I'm in this really beautiful, like safe, fun, the best relationship of my life. But I was telling her it was this relationship and the one before it. But what I realized was I loved myself in both of these relationships. I loved who I was. I loved how I showed up. And that it wasn't in the past, it was always about how much I loved the other person. But what I've realized over the past few years is I just love who I am. And when you love who you are and you trust yourself and you love how you're showing up, it just makes the relationship so much easier and so fuller. So exactly uh-huh. what you're saying. And that's what, that's what we want to gift everybody is how to get to that place. That is so beautiful. And I'm so happy for you. You deserve every single second of that. And I think that that brings me to a question, which I was going to bring up on another podcast, but I actually think now is the perfect time, which is that there's a lot of discussion on social media about should you wait until you're healed to date or can you date when healing? I've got lots to say on this, but I just wanted to ask you your thoughts. I think relationships are a vehicle for healing. 
So no, if we wait to be healed, to be close to people and receive love and give love, we'll be alone for a long time. So no, the process of healing is the process of life. And of course, you can have relationships during that process. That's how we learn. That's how we practice. You don't wait until you're fully healed because who's ever fully healed? I'm sure there's things I need to learn and grow that I don't even know yet. That was exactly my answer as well, is that I'm not fully healed and I've done more therapy than the the average person. And yes, I've come so far, but I hate this dichotomy of belief that you're either healed or unhealed. I think we just need to understand that we've all lived lives that have shaped us in certain ways and then we deal with the repercussions of it. And if you're conscious, you start to look into that and think, okay, how did that shape me and how can I do things differently? If you're not conscious, you just live a life disconnected, numbing, et cetera, et cetera. And another thing that I want to say is that I actually think that love and also sex can be two of the most healing things out there. So for anyone that's new that is listening that doesn't know about this, I went through a horrible, horrible breakup a year and a half ago. It was the first time that my abandonment wound was ever, ever showed up. I didn't even realize it existed. He cut me out, never spoke to me again. You know, it was super triggering, super traumatizing for me. And so after that, I didn't sleep with anyone. I didn't date anyone for a year and a half. And I really pushed people out. And then now what I've realized since meeting this lovely, lovely man is exactly what Dr. Terry has just said is we are all a work in progress. I've had more healing in the last two months being with this man than I had in the nearly 20 months of being on my own doing the work because you are right. Relationships are the biggest vehicles for our teaching and our healing. But I think that we have to come into them consciously because if you come into them with trauma that you're just flying around, you hurt the other person. Yes, of course, you should not be dating if that is the position that you're in. But if you're coming into things like with a conscious awareness, then I think relationships are a key part of our healing, actually. Now, I'm aware that we're coming to the end of this episode. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions that have come in from TikTok. So we'll just do a couple of quick fire questions. Okay, I need to find them. Hold on. Okay, so the first question is, where's the line between doing your own work and their role in supporting your healing? I've heard both are important. So I guess that ties into exactly what we've been talking about. So say you're coming into a relationship with this slightly anxious attachment style. What is it that you should be expecting from them versus what is it that you should be doing yourself? So basically, you want to make sure you're with somebody that your anxious attachment style isn't going to trigger. So whatever their stuff is, they can make room easily for your anxious attachment style. And like I said before, it's about both of you leaning in to supporting each other when you can. So you work on your anxious attachment and they can be someone who can be supportive of that without them feeling resentful, without feeling stifled, without it feeling like a lot of work for them. Some people aren't going to be the right fit. And alternatively, the person you're with is going to have stuff that maybe aren't super easy for you to deal with. You have to ask yourself, can I accept them fully and work with this? That's the question that both people need to ask each other. I love that. Thank you so much. Okay, next question is, why do I have this? I thought you developed this anxious attachment style from some sort of trauma, but I was very lucky to have such amazing parents. Yeah, so this is a common question. Trauma is this big word, and sometimes we associate it with these huge, painful, or abusive situations, but trauma can come in small moments or in relationships where we aren't aren't fully attuned to emotionally. Trauma 
there's varying levels of that. And so again, like when we go more into attachment and anxious attachment, what can develop that? It's about so much more than this big blinking light trauma. Most of us have had some trauma in our life, even when we have beautiful, amazing parents. All of our parents have limitations because they're human too, and they're learning the same way that we are. So my guess is maybe there's some more exploration that that person who asked the question could do to understand some of those smaller traumas that may have happened. Yeah, I love that. And I also think there's some more like physical sides to it that I read as well is that, for example, if your mother was super stressed when you were in utero, it can like lay the foundations for a more hypersensitive nervous system. Okay, this one is interesting. So someone said, oh my God, yes, I'm married. And every day I feel that my husband has to prove he still loves me. I constantly look out for subtle signs. And if I don't see any, I feel rejected. So what would you say to someone that's like deep in a relationship and still experiencing these things? Because I think a lot of people feel like, oh, if I just get a boyfriend or I just get engaged or I just get some security, then this will go away. First of all, I just my heart goes out to this person because that is such a hard way to live. There's no peace. There's no grounding, no consistency in the way that she feels. So I would encourage her to start self-work if she hasn't done it, start therapy, because he can't possibly give you that feeling of peace that you are seeking. It will not come from him. It needs to come from you. You need to redirect the source of that through doing your own work. Yeah, it's not a nice way to live, but I think that there is hope. You just have to take control of the situation with compassion. Okay, next question. This one's a funny one. It says, oh my God, you're so right. This explains why for the first year of my relationship with my boyfriend, I was fully expecting every date to be the last. I I feel I can relate to that. I think when you're dating someone, it's so difficult because at the beginning, you feel like you can't communicate with them because they don't know you enough. You know, it's too much, too soon. So you try and be the chill girl. You try and be the cool girl. And also on top of that, you feel like they're probably dating other people. So it's just like, horrible. What advice would you have other than the assumed positive intent that we've already discussed about for navigating that kind of like early stages of a relationship? You know, when do you think is the right time to have this conversation? Because I would say it was only after six to eight weeks that I felt like, okay, I can start to have these conversations with my man about what I have gone through and how it shaped me this way. But in the first like six to eight weeks before that, like in episode 38, even if he didn't want to meet me for a coffee, I'd have meltdown. So what are your thoughts in terms of when is the right time to have this discussion? And I know there's no one size fits all answer, but any thoughts on that? Like how soon is it to say, oh, I I have an anxious attachment style. This means this. I'm working on it, but I just wanted to let you know that this is what I'm like. I would say, again, I don't know, maybe a few dates in, but again, own it. Just own it. This is who I am. And if that person is really interested in you, they're going to want to make you feel secure. If they're dating a bunch of other people or they're just not very attuned to you, they're probably just going to keep doing what they're doing. So it is really just owning who you are and, you know, saying this is who I am. It's not your responsibility, but this is how it is. Yeah. I also think that something we spoke about on last week's podcast that resonated with tons of people was the absolute 
gem that you dropped about how someone with an anxious attachment style only feels as safe as their last interaction with a person. And I actually think that's a really good way to help someone that doesn't understand to understand. So hopefully there will be some like tidbits from throughout these podcasts that, you know, you can use in that conversation with that person. Okay, so we are nearly wrapped on time. And there are so many more questions that I want to ask and that people are coming in with on TikTok and on Instagram. So we will definitely look at a way of how we can help you guys with those questions at some point. But I think the vast majority of questions are basically like help me how do you fix this and I think that what Dr. Terry and I want to share as we wrap up this episode is that we are obsessed with doing these podcasts with you guys but there is an element of going deeper that often needs to occur for you to really break the cycle understanding your own personal fears your own personal frameworks of love that you've experienced how your dynamic with your parents and your caregivers have shaped this how your traumas in your early relationships will exacerbate this how you cope with things and so that is why Dr. Terry and I are basically on a mission to provide a revolution in the therapy world to help people get those answers who maybe don't have hundreds and thousands of dollars to go on that traditional therapy journey. So for anyone that's listening to this, that's thinking, yes, this is everything that I need. I need to go deeper. We are going to help you do that. Not only in the looking back to understand what it is that's gone through that shaped you to be the way you are, but also the looking forward, the rewiring your neural pathways, the managing your nervous system, calming it. So We are working on something that I think will be major for everyone listening. Please do head to thisisopenhouse.com and drop your email in the email capture sign up so you'll be the first to know about it. But ultimately, is that the answer, Dr. Terry? Is that how you fix this? Is it by understanding yourself better and looking at living in a different way once you have that awareness? Do you think that's like the biggest summary that we can give? Yeah, it's about understanding the old patterns and then practicing new tools and new ways of responding. That's where the the work comes in, for sure. I love that, practicing. That's exactly it, because it's not something that happens overnight, and I'm talking from experience. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone that has been listening. We are so grateful for your support. We are so excited to have so many new people on this journey with us. We can't wait to guide you on that journey. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it on your social media, tag Dr. Terry Mack. I am Louise Rumble and Open House Life. And if you would love to give us a review on Spotify or Apple, we would be so grateful. We hit the top 10 on the mental health charts in the UK and the US last week. And I celebrated with a pizza and a couple of tears because I was just so happy. I was like, I can't believe that we're finally reaching so many people with these really important topics. So... As ever, Dr. Terry, thank you. You are incredible. It's so amazing to have a clinical psychologist on board here to give so much value to people that just aren't able to get this if they can't get inside a therapy room. So thank you for everything you do. Can't wait for what's ahead. And I will see you next episode. Thank you. I'm excited. Bye.